You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Support comes from the History's Trainwrecks podcast that focuses on stories like a temper tantrum that changed history, the president who promised not to run again and regretted it for the rest of his life, the World War II general who lost his pants on a secret mission in enemy territory. The History's Trainwrecks podcast, available now. The U.S. legal system has had a mixed history when it comes to race, with high points like Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas, which said that separate is not equal, and Loving versus Virginia, which protected interracial marriage, and low points like the notorious Dred Scott decision, which said that a black person could not be a citizen or take action in court. And it's not just the Supreme Court either. As above, so below, and that trickles all the way down to the United States Patent and Trademark Office. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Real quick before we get properly stuck in, what is a patent? Officially, a patent is a type of intellectual property that gives its owner the legal right to exclude others from making, using, or selling an invention for a set period of time. Not to be confused with trademark or copyright, which you can hear more about in our episode Copy Wrong, link in the show notes. Do you need a patent to be an inventor? No, but you do need one if you want to be the only person who sells the thing you invented. A patent can't actually stop other people before they steal your idea, as anyone who's had to deal with cheap foreign knockoffs knows. That happened to a fellow who designed these amazing motion-sensing LED eyelashes that I had back in my burlesque days. The Chinese knockoffs hit Amazon before his Kickstarter even finished. What a patent does, though, is give you some ammo if you go to court for legal remedy. If going to court is financially feasible, and for most people, it's just not. Patents are a kind of property, a thing that you can own. When you live in a place where certain people, specifically those from Africa and their descendants kept in bondage in the U.S., are barred from having property, that means no patents for enslaved people. A 19th century law specified that patent applicants had to sign a patent oath that, among other things, attested to their country of citizenship. When the Dred Scott decision effectively denied black Americans any citizenship at all, That meant an automatic dismissal of patent applications by slaves. Nonetheless, black inventors persisted and sometimes were successful at the patent office, despite staggering legal impediments. A well-known example is George Washington Carver, who was born a slave but was still issued three patents in his lifetime, a number that is but a shadow of his inventive genius. The man did everything with a peanut, except invent peanut butter. The first known patent to a black inventor was to Thomas Jennings in 1821 for a method similar to dry cleaning. 
The first known to a black woman was issued to Martha Jones in 1868 for an improved corn husking and shelling machine. Well, she might be the first, but she might not be. More on that later, and by later I mean next week, because my research exceeded my grasp again. And actually, this could be either part one of a new pair of Black Inventor episodes or part three of what's going to become an annual tradition. I say this as I'm recording, extemporaneously, not yet having named the episode. Honestly, I should probably cut this out, it's starting to get weird. Despite being removed from their home, intentionally mixed with people from other regions with whom they had no common language, denied an education or the right to educate themselves, and of course all the outright abuse and atrocities, the enslaved people of America were no less clever than their white counterparts and no less driven to improve their lives. More so, probably. When a white man invents a new farming tool, it's to save his tired back. When a black slave invented a new and improved tool, he was saving his family. The new idea could save him from lashings, spare his wife working herself to death, save the fingers and limbs of his children from the machines of the time. And of course, making yourself more valuable to the person who dictates your fate doesn't hurt anything either. You'll notice a certain pattern to the stories today. Not that that means the stories need telling any less. Each story does have its own individual details, of course, though many of them will make you facepalm so hard you'll get a cyst. That's the thing that actually happened to a sister of mine back in, like, 1990, when you made fun of someone else's intelligence with a dramatic slap to your own forehead. And my husband says, I'm critical. There are facepalmy stories like a man named Ned who invented a cotton scraper. The man who kept Ned in bondage, Oscar Stewart, tried to patent Ned's invention, but was denied because he couldn't prove he was the inventor, because he wasn't. Stewart went as far as to write to the Secretary of the Interior in 1858, asserting that, quote, <clears throat> The master is the owner of the fruits of the labor of the slave, both manual and intellectual. It was later that same year that the law was specifically written to bar enslaved blacks from getting patents. It also barred plantation owners from getting patents of an idea originally conceived by an enslaved person, if they owned up to not being the inventor. Stewart began manufacturing the cotton scraper and reportedly used this testimony from a fellow plantation owner, and uh, this is the bit where you might do yourself some minor battery. I am glad to know that your implement is the invention of a Negro slave thus giving the lie to the abolition cry that slavery dwarfs the mind of the Negro. When did a free Negro ever invent anything? Oy vey. Free blacks invented tons of things. For further reading, look up Granville T. Woods, often called the Black Edison. Woods was a self-taught engineer who received over 50 patents, which is more than 50 more than most of us have, but he was clearly able to get patents and that puts him outside of the focus for today. We're looking at people like Benjamin Bradley, born a slave around 1830 in Maryland. Unusually and illegally, he was able to read and write. While being made to work in a print shop as a teenager, Bradley began messing around with some scrap material and modeled a small ship. He quickly built his skills until he graduated from model boats to building a working steam engine from a piece of a gun barrel and some random handy junk. You can't not be impressed by that. 
and the people around Bradley certainly were. He was placed in a new job, this time at the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis, as a classroom assistant in the science department. He helped to set up and conduct experiments, working with chemical gases. The faculty were impressed with Bradley, both for his understanding of the subject material and also the skill with which he readied the experiments. Praise is nice, but a paycheck would be even nicer. Bradley was given a salary, but he still belonged to a white man who took most of his money. Bradley was allowed to keep about $5 a month, or about $180 roughly today. Despite having a relatively good setup in Annapolis, Bradley hadn't forgotten about his steam engine. He'd sold an early prototype to a student and used that and the money he'd been able to squirrel away from his pay to build a larger model. He worked his way up to an engine large enough to become the first to propel a steam-powered warship he was with Navy types after all, at 16 knots, which is about 18 miles or 29 kilometers per hour. Because Benjamin Bradley was a slave, he was unable to get a patent for this groundbreaking design that the Navy was very interested in. His master did, however, allow him to sell the engine, and he used that money to purchase his freedom. So, if you have an idea you really believe in, stick with it. Another Benjamin with a talent for tinkering was Benjamin Montgomery, born in 1819 in Loudoun County, Virginia. A lot of stories like this start in my home state. He was sold to Joseph E. Davis of Mississippi, the older brother of Jefferson Davis, future president of the Confederate States of America. For my listeners in the foreign parts, uh, they were the bad guys. Joseph must have been more liberal than Jefferson, because he recognized Montgomery's intelligence and tasked him to run the general store on the Davis Bend plantation. Montgomery, who'd been taught to read and write by Davis's children, excelled in retail management, and Davis promoted Montgomery to overseeing the entirety of his purchasing and shipping operations. Montgomery also learned a number of difficult skills, like land surveying, flood control, drafting, and mechanics. The Golden Spike wouldn't be driven in the Transcontinental Railroad for another four years after the end of the Civil War, so that meant that natural waterways were the best and most important way to get widgets, kajiggers, and doodads from A to B. This wasn't as simple as those of us of the interstate highway system epoch might imagine. Nature, in her beauty, is inconsistent, and varying and variable depths of rivers made it difficult to navigate. Heavy spring rain could cause sandbars to shift, and boom, now your boat is stuck and your cargo is delayed. And they lacked the benefit of the comparatively tiny backhoe that tried to dig the ever-given out of the Suez Canal. And how was that less than a year ago? It feels like an actual lifetime. Montgomery set out to address that problem. He was in shipping and receiving, after all and created a propeller that could cut into water at different angles. With it, boats could easily and reliably navigate shallow water. Joseph Davis attempted to patent the device in 1858, but the patent was denied, not because Davis wasn't the inventor, but because Montgomery, as a slave, was not a citizen of the United States, and thus couldn't be issued the patent. If this were a YouTube video instead of a podcast, I'd use that clip from the Naked Gun movie of the whole stadium of people facepalming at the same time. 
you can actually listen to Your Brain on Facts on YouTube, if you didn't know that. Later, both Joseph and Jefferson Davis attempted to patent the device in their name and were denied again. Ironically and surprisingly, when Jefferson Davis later assumed the presidency of the Confederacy, he signed into law legislation that would allow enslaved blacks to receive patent protection for their inventions. That's like the opposite of a silver lining, and honestly a bad place for an ad break, but here we are. And remember, if you don't like listening to the ads, there's always patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, where new supporters like Marissa get the new episodes early and ad-free, as well as bonus content, topic polls, and lots of other cool benefits. And if you just wanted to hit the tip jar one time, I'm on coffee now, so ko-fi.com slash yourbrainonfacts. And now a word from our sponsors. If you enjoy the incredible real stories that you hear on Your Brain on Facts, you're gonna wanna check out the podcast, What Was That Like? It's different from any other show that you'll listen to. Each episode is a conversation between the host, Scott Johnson, and a regular run-of-the-mill person who's been through a not-run-of-the-mill experience. Like being involved in a mass shooting, surviving a plane crash, getting bitten by a rattlesnake, or getting a deal on Shark Tank. The guest tells the story, not the host. So you hear firsthand what happened. And it does exactly what it says on the tin, with episode titles like Ramon's wife hired a hitman to kill him, and David won big on Wheel of Fortune. You can find What Was That Like on your favorite podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. You made it through the holidays, but now we have to slog through the winter when it can be really hard to take care of yourself. Fresh fruits and vegetables tend to leave our diets, and we're just not getting the vitamins and antioxidants we need. Luckily, there's Sambucol. Sambucol is the original black elderberry supplement. Now, I'm kind of a big fan of elderberries. We have an elderberry tree that we planted just outside our front door. Black elderberries are a natural source of vitamins C, E, and A, and have more free radical fighting antioxidants than cranberries, blueberries, or pomegranates. But my favorite part about it is all the different ways you can take it. They have gummies, which are super tasty and nice and tart, a syrup, which goes lovely in a cup of chamomile tea, and if you go to sambucallusa.com and use the code BRAIN15, you get 15% off your next order of $9.99. sambucallusa.com, offer code BRAIN15. After the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation, when Montgomery, no longer enslaved, filed his own patent application, it was also rejected. Davis sold his plantation and some other properties to Montgomery and his son Isaiah on a long-term loan in the amount of $300,000. That is a big chunk of change if that's in today dollars, but back then? They wanted to use the land to establish a community for freed slaves, but natural disasters decimated their crops, leaving them unable to pay off the loan. The Davis Bend property reverted back to the Davis family, and Benjamin passed away the following year. Undeterred, Isaiah took up his father's dream and later purchased 840 acres of land where he and other former slaves 
founded the town of Mound Bayou, Mississippi in 1887, with Isaiah as its first mayor. My research didn't indicate specifically why Free Montgomery's application was refused, but one assumes racism. The new language of patent law was written to be colorblind, but it's humans reading the applications, so some black inventors hid their race by doing things like using initials instead of their name if their name sounded black. Others used white partners as proxies, writes Brian L. Fry, a professor at the University of Kentucky's College of Law. This makes it difficult to know how many African Americans were actually involved in early patents. Though free black Americans, like Thomas Jennings, were able to patent their inventions, in practice, obtaining a patent was difficult and expensive, and defending that patent? Forget about it. If the legal system was biased against black inventors, they wouldn't have been able to defend their patents, says Petra Moser, a professor of economics at New York University's Stern School of Business. Also, you need capital to defend your patent, and black inventors generally had less access to capital. And if the issue were pursued in court, credibility usually automatically went to the white man. It's impossible to know how many inventions between the 1790 establishment of the Patent Office and the 1865 end of the Civil War were stolen from enslaved people. For one thing, in 1836, all the patents were being kept in Washington's Blodgett's Hotel temporarily while a new facility was being built, and a fire broke out, which is bad. There was a fire station right next door, which is good, but it was winter and the firefighters' leather hoses burst in the cold, which is bad. They tried to do a bucket brigade, but it wasn't enough. All 10,000 patents and 7,000 patent models, which used to be a requirement, were lost. These are called ex-patents, not only because they'd been lost, but because before the fire, patents weren't numbered, just labeled with their name and issue date, like a library sans the Dewey Decimal System. They were able to replace some patents by asking inventors to send back their copy, after which they were numbered for sure. As of 2004, the last reference I found to this, about 2,800 of the X patents had been recovered. The first patent issued to a black inventor was not among them. That patent, as I mentioned, most likely belonged to Thomas Jennings, and you owe him a big ol' thank you if you've ever spilled food on your fancy formal wear and had it not been irrevocably ruined. Jennings invented a process called dry scouring, a forerunner of modern dry cleaning. He patented the process in 1821, to wit he is widely believed to be the first black person in America to get a patent, but it can't really be proved or disproved because fire. Whether he was first or not, Jennings was only able to do so because he had been born free in New York City. Jennings started out as an apprentice to a prominent New York tailor before opening his own clothing shop in Lower Manhattan, a large and successful concern. He secured a patent for his dry scouring method of removing dirt and grease from clothing in 1821, or as the New York Gazette reported on it, a method of dry scouring clothes and woolen fabrics in general so that they keep their original shape and have the polish and appearance of new. 
I'll take eight. What was this revolutionary new technique? No freaking clue. Because fire. But we do know that Jennings kept his patent letter, signed by then-Secretary of State and future President John Quincy Adams, in a gold frame over his bed. And that Jennings put much of his earnings from the invention toward the fight for the abolition of slavery, funding a number of charities and legal aid societies, the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, and Freedom's Journal, the first black-owned newspaper in America. Dry Scouring put all of his kids through school, and they became successful in their careers and prominent in the abolition movement. His daughter Elizabeth, a schoolteacher, rose to national attention in 1854 when she boarded a whites-only horse-drawn streetcar in New York and refused to get off like Rosa Parks 101 years before Rosa Parks. Except Elizabeth bodily fought the efforts of the conductor to throw her off, hanging on to the window frame. A letter she wrote about the incident was published in several abolitionist papers, and her father hired a lawyer to fight the streetcar company. Amazingly, they won. Again, this was before the Civil War, let alone civil rights. The judge ruled that it was unlawful to eject black people from public transportation so long as they were, quote, sober, well-behaved, and free from disease. Their lawyer was a young Chester A. Arthur, future 21st president of the United States. Also in illustrious company is everybody that has been sharing hashtag MoxieMillion. Week two's winner is Hearts and Wheels over on Instagram, and they make amazing crochet patterns. You've got to check them out. The Lily of the Valley is so beautiful. Just in case you don't know what I'm talking about, Your Brain on Facts turns four years old on February 27th, and we're trying to get to one million downloads. As of me standing here recording, we are currently at... 969, nice, 1,493. So share a fact from the show, share one of my social media posts. Just tell people how much you enjoy listening, or maybe you hate listening, but you just turn in to make yourself angry. I don't know, you do you, boo. But share it on social media, hashtag MoxieMillion, M-O-X-I-E-M-I-L-L-I-O-N, singular. Because I'm giving away prizes whether we get to a million or not, but boy, would that be a super good present for the podcast, you know, and for me, my birthday's two weeks after. Speaking of birthdays, it feels like a gift every time I get a review for the podcast or the book. But those are thin on the ground. We haven't gotten a review for the Your Brain on Facts book since Halloween. And after the review I'm about to read, I've only got one more in the queue. So if you like hearing your opinion read to thousands of people, please leave me a review on Apple Podcast, Podchaser, or on your app. But this one comes to us through Podchaser by M. Bailey M.M., which reminds me of putting X's at the start and finish of my uh, Xbox name, who says, Remember the supplementary material, likely videos, that your teacher would play in class that were super fun, exciting, and educational without being overbearing? Oh God, what was better than when you saw the teacher wheel in the AV cart? This is the podcast equivalent of that. If you had a vastly different educational experience that didn't include things like that, then, uh... This podcast is fun, exciting, and educational without being overbearing. You'd get to learn something while having fun without being slapped with too much information. Also, Moxie's great. In either the engaging teacher great or the smart friend who had to tutor you because you were barely holding on, still not sure which. I will take that, M. Bailey, though it might be a little long for a nameplate. 
Henry Boyd's story began like the others we've heard, but in Kentucky in 1802. He was apprenticed out to a cabinet maker where he displayed tremendous talent for carpentry. So proficient and hardworking was Boyd that he was allowed to take on work of his own, a side hustle as we say these days, and earn his own money. And Boyd eventually made enough to buy his freedom at age 18. At 24, a nearly penniless Boyd moved to Cincinnati. Ohio was a free state, but Cincinnati sat too close to slave state Kentucky to be welcoming to blacks. Our skilled carpenter Boyd couldn't find anyone willing to hire him. One shop considered hiring him, but all of the white employees threatened to quit, so no joy there. Boyd finally found work on the riverfront with other African Americans and Irish immigrants working as stevedores and laborers. Boyd himself was a janitor in a store. One day, when a white carpenter showed up too drunk to work, Boyd built the counter for the shopkeeper. This impressed his boss so much that he contracted him for other construction projects. Through word of mouth, Boyd's talent began to bring him some of the respect he deserved and a good amount of paying work. He diligently saved up to buy his brother and sister out of bondage too and purchase his own wood shop. And this wasn't like a humble garage or shared industrial space. His workshop grew to spread across four buildings. This was where he came up with his next big idea, a bed frame. Wait, it's interesting, I promise. Everybody needs a bed, and a bed needs a frame. The Boyd bedstead was a sturdier, better designed bed frame that was an immediate success that he couldn't get a patent for. But a white cabinet maker named George Parker did. It's not known whether the two were working together and Porter was Boyd's white face for the patent office, or if Porter ripped Boyd off. Either way, the Boyd bedstead was becoming extremely popular, with prominent citizens and hotels clamoring to buy them. The H. Boyd Company name was stamped on each one to set them apart from all of the knockoffs that such success inevitably brings. Not only were his bedsteads breaking new ground, but his shop of up to 50 employees was racially integrated. This social advance was Politely put, not popular. The factory was the target of arsonists and was burnt to the ground. Twice. Twice Boyd rebuilt. But after the third fire, no insurance company would cover him. And in 1862, the doors closed for good. But don't worry about Boyd. He'd saved enough to live out his retirement comfortably, but he wasn't lounging around. Boyd was active in the Underground Railroad and housed runaway slaves in a secret room. His home was welcoming to the needy as well. Henry Boyd passed away at the age of 83 and was laid to rest in an unmarked grave in Spring Grove Cemetery. While you may not be able to find where Boyd rests, if you want to rest on a Boyd bedstead, they fetch high prices in antique stores and auctions. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. And of course not. This is a series. I just say that. You might have noticed that today's episode was a bit of a sausage party. So it's a good thing we're going to pick up next week with the stories, triumphs, and tribulations of female inventors of color. The world has so many amazing facts in it, and I am just a humble weekly half-hour podcaster. So see you next week for the next installment. Remember, you can always find the source links and the full script at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. 
and stay safe. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.